for the last few months, whenever we have observed the Lord's Supper, I have brought a special message focusing on some aspect of our Lord's death on the cross. However, tonight I really don't need to bring a special message because in the providence of God, the passage of Scripture that we have come to tonight in our study of 1 Corinthians is actually dealing with the Lord's Supper. It's about the Lord's Supper. It's a major part of the passage. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 14, going all the way to verse 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We're not stronger than he, are we? Now, we began to look at this passage actually a couple of weeks ago. But we focused only on two verses, verses 14 and 15, in which Paul states the command to flee from idolatry. And then he tells them, I speak to those who are wise, so I know that you're, gonna, you're listening, you, you understand what I'm saying. And the reason he had to make such a command is because those in Corinth who believed it was all right, it was okay to eat food sacrifice to an idol, these people were in danger of becoming careless in their Christian lives, so that being overconfident in their ability to handle the temptation of idolatry, Paul knew that they could very easily fall into the sin of idol worship by going to a pagan temple and participating in the worship of an idol. You see, while the Apostle Paul never forbids any of the Corinthian Christians to eat food sacrificed to an idol. He never says that it's absolutely wrong, it's inherently evil. He doesn't say that at all. Why? Because it was allowable by God. That's the point he makes in chapter 8. It's allowable by God. And thus we refer to it as a liberty issue. However, Paul would never take it a step further and allow the worship of an idol because idolatry is not a liberty issue at all. It's rather a blatant, clear sin against God. And that's why the apostle has to forcefully command the Corinthians to flee from idolatry because he's concerned that some of them, some of them who understood that an idol was nothing, theologically they understood an idol really is nothing, these folks were playing with fire by not guarding their hearts against the temptation of idolatry. And with this just lackadaisical spiritual attitude, they were putting themselves in great danger of taking it a step further from eating food sacrificed to an idol to then moving to the temple involved in a feast where they would actually be involved in idolatry. And so he not only commands them against idolatry, but notice Paul tells them to run from it, to flee, which in their setting, he meant don't even go near a pagan temple where the worship of an idol was taking place. Don't even go near there 
Run from that. Don't hang around a pagan temple when you know they're about to have one of their idolatrous feasts. Don't even go in the vicinity of one of those temples. Just run away from it as fast as you can. That's Paul's thought. Now, as I told you last time we studied this command to flee idolatry, that although today in our culture we, we don't have to face pagan temples and metal and wood idols that the Corinthians faced, but idolatry nonetheless is still a major issue. It is in every culture, and we need to be warned about it. And the reason for this is because idolatry comes in many forms. See, an idol is essentially anything that demands your primary loyalty ahead of your loyalty and devotion to Jesus. So based on this basic definition of idolatry, far from being an irrelevant, outdated subject, idolatry is a major temptation that every one of us in this room faces because we are always being tempted to put things ahead of the Lord, things that we are more devoted to, have more affection for, worship instead of, of Christ himself. Like other people, we, we can put them on a pedestal. Our spouse, our children, our grandchildren, our jobs, money, possessions, a hobby, our favorite sports, our, uh, and anything, anything that we own tends to own us. So all these things can become gods that we worship. We may not physically bow down to any of them, but they can become so important in our lives that we actually think of them as if they were on a pedestal and we exalt them and thus they become an idol. So idol worship indeed is a relevant issue for us and it's a serious issue. Just as Paul told the Corinthians to flee idolatry, so he tells us to flee it as well. So if there's anything in your life, especially as we're about to observe the Lord's Supper, anything more important to you than Jesus Christ it is an idol that you need to repent of before you come and partake of communion. And by repentance, I don't simply mean that you tell the Lord that you're sorry for making something more important than it should be, but that you actually forsake, forsake this idol. Yes, you should be sorry, but you should be more than sorry. You should take steps to take the idol off the pedestal, off the exaltation, and just put it where it belongs. Whatever it takes for you to forsake this object of something you've put ahead of the Lord, that's what you have to do. Now tonight as we continue our study of this passage, we see that Paul isn't content to just command us to flee idolatry because in the verses following this command, he proceeds to give several reasons to flee idolatry. And he does this because he wants us to see the seriousness of worshiping an idol. It's not a minor issue. It's not a trivial issue. It is something of utmost importance because to worship anything other than God is to insult him. It's to degrade him. It's to belittle his glory. It's to say that something else is greater than he is. And that is the height of insulting God. He has no rivals. He is the supreme one. And so in order to persuade us as to why it's so important to flee idolatry, Paul actually builds a case. He's like an attorney building a case. And he does this by giving several reasons for why we should flee idolatry. With the first one being, number one, to join in a worship feast is to experience fellowship with whatever you're worshiping. Let me say that again. I think they have it on the screen. But to join in a worship feast is to experience fellowship with whatever 
you're worshiping. Keep that in mind. That's very important. And Paul will eventually, as we unfold this passage, come to the point about how that connects with the Lord's Supper and idolatry. So, verse 16 says this. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Now notice the first thing Paul mentions in this verse is something called the cup of blessing. So what is that? What is the cup of blessing? Well, the cup of blessing is the name that Jewish people gave to the third cup of wine used in the Passover feast. It was traditionally called the cup of a blessing, sometimes called the cup of thanksgiving. You see, at different intervals during the traditional Passover meal, four cups of wine were actually used. And the cup of blessing, or thanksgiving, was the third of these four cups used in the Passover feast. Now, many Bible scholars believe that it was this third cup of wine that Jesus used when he changed the Passover feast into the Lord's Supper. He did that, as you know, in the upper room using it as a symbol, the cup of wine, the third cup, the cup of blessing, using it as a symbol of his blood and upcoming death. And that certainly seems to be the case because right after mentioning the cup of blessing, notice that Paul immediately speaks of the Lord's Supper. He says, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Now, in mentioning the blood of Christ, and the bread which we break as the body of Christ, there's no question here that Paul is talking about believers in Christ participating in the Lord's Supper, sometimes called communion, or even the Lord's table. The question is, why does our participation in the Lord's Supper, what does that have to do with idolatry? Well, Paul's going to answer that question in just a few verses, but before we address anything else about the Lord's Supper, one thing we do know for sure, and that is the fact that Paul brings up the Lord's Supper as something that believers in Christ participate in, it tells us that the Apostle, the Apostle Paul assumed that the Lord's Supper is something that all Christians observed on a regular basis, and rightfully so. Why? Because Jesus commands us to do this. In Luke 22, verse 19, and when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. And then Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me. It's a command by the Lord. Now, folks, this is the Lord's instruction. This is not an option. It's a command. And yet it seems that some believers look at observing the Lord's Supper as something optional, something that really isn't that important because their salvation doesn't depend upon it. So if it's convenient for them to observe the Lord's Supper, they'll do it. Meaning what? Well, in the context of our church, it means that they'll be here. If they're here on a Sunday morning and we just happen to be observing the Lord's Supper that day, then great, they'll take it. But if it's on a Sunday night and they don't usually come to church on a Sunday night, they're not going to go out of their way to come to church on a Sunday night because that's inconvenient for them or whatever reason they might come up with. And so they're not going to participate in the Lord's Supper. And I realize that I am preaching to the choir right now because you're here. But what do we say to all this? Well, we say that they're right in the fact that their salvation isn't dependent upon them participating in the Lord's Supper. If it was, then it would be salvation by something other than grace. However, 
On the other hand, your Lord commands you to observe his supper. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So while no one is saved by taking communion, obeying the command to take communion on a regular basis with your church family, morning or evening, does indicate to some degree if obedience to Jesus is important to you. It's not presented as an option. Certainly no Christian should ever minimize the importance of the Lord's Supper. They should take it very seriously. And the reason for this is the very point that Paul is making in verse 16, which is that when we as Christians, when we partake of the Supper, we are actually engaged in fellowshipping with Christ himself and with other believers in Christ. This is why Paul used the word, notice, in verse 16, two times he used the word sharing in this verse. And the Greek word that is translated in my translation as sharing, but sometimes it's translated participation, but that Greek word is the well-known word koinonia. It means partnership. It means fellowship. It means participation with. It means communion. It means sharing. So what Paul is telling us is that when we come to the Lord's table and we partake of the cup, which is symbolic of Christ's blood shed on our behalf. And when we partake of the bread, which is symbolic of Christ's life being broken on our behalf and then shared with all believers, we are actually communing with Jesus himself and with his people. In other words, every time we come together as a church body, as a church family, to observe the Lord's Supper, we have entered into a very sacred special time of fellowship, a communion with Jesus and with other believers in him. Now, this in no way means that when we partake of the elements that they turn into the actual blood and body of Christ. That is known, big word, transubstantiation. And it is what Roman Catholics believe. They believe that the elements turn into the actual blood and body of Christ. That's just ridiculous, but that's what they hold to. Nor does it mean that when we partake of the elements that the actual blood and body of Christ are present, but alongside of the bread and wine. This is known as consubstantiation. It's something that many Lutherans hold to. We reject both of those doctrines. We reject the doctrine of transubstantiation and consubstantiation and don't even try to spell it. And why do we reject it? Because it's just not biblical. Because in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, we read that Christ was offered once, meaning that he can never be sacrificed again. His substitutionary death on the cross for our sins was a one-time deal. It's never to be repeated. It never will be repeated, which is ultimately what you have if every time in the Catholic faith you have the elements turning into the blood and body of Christ. No, the cup and the bread are merely symbols of his one-time sacrificial death on our behalf. But here's something important that each of us needs to know, each of us needs to understand about the Lord's Supper. While the cup and the bread are only symbols, we understand that, they simply remind us of Christ's death. Note this, the fellowship that we have with Jesus and other believers during the Lord's Supper that's not symbolic. That's very real. Here's how one Bible teacher explained this unique fellowship and why it happens when we observe the Lord's Supper. 
He said, the picture of someone we love is not the same as that person. It only represents the person. But the feelings of love, care, desire to be with them, and of remembering experiences we have had with them are totally real. We have an experience of real fellowship and kinship with that person whenever we see the picture. Our minds are flooded with reality. When we're thinking of them, our earthly loved ones are seldom aware of it, but our Lord is intensely aware of it when we think of him. When we remember his death for us, his becoming sin for us, his taking our penalty upon himself, his redeeming us, all of which is represented by his shed blood, we participate in the most intimate and real communion with him and with all others in him. Now listen, the point that Paul is making is that when we come together to celebrate, to observe the Lord's Supper, we enter into fellowship. It's a a very real spiritual partnership with Jesus and with his people. And notice Paul reiterates this very same truth in the next verse, verse 17. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So what does he mean here? Well, essentially what Paul is saying here is the same thing he's just said in the previous verse, except here he emphasizes the fellowship we have, not so much with the Lord, he already said that, but with each other when we participate in the Lord's Supper. So when he says that there's one bread, he means one loaf of bread, and that we who are many are one body, and that we all partake of that one loaf, he means that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we share in a special kind of fellowship, a partnership with one another. That is to say, at communion, when we're all together, and we're all remembering Christ's death on our behalf, and praising him at the same time, and thanking him for his death, we are actually fellowshipping with one another. We're on the same page. We're all doing the same thing by thinking about and rejoicing about the common salvation that we all share. I like the way John MacArthur put it when he said, celebrating our common salvation and eternal life is the ultimate fellowship of believers while we are on earth and reflects the perfect fellowship we will have in heaven. Now, just as a side note, and it really is a side note, but I think it's important. This special fellowship with one another during the Lord's Supper is the reason why when we practice church discipline at Lakeside, we do it usually just before communion. And we do this because when we excommunicate someone, we are declaring publicly that they are in the process of being put out of the fellowship as well as the membership of the church unless they repent of their sin, that we consider them no longer a part of the body of Christ because they aren't behaving like a member of the body of Christ should behave. So I want you to know that's why we do it then, because communion speaks of our common life. Communion speaks of our shared life. Communion speaks of our participation as believers, our fellowship with Christ. When someone who claims to know Christ doesn't repent, we put them out of that fellowship. So that's why we do it then. So the Lord's Supper is a time that we recognize our unity in Jesus as we become partners with one another in celebrating our common wonderful salvation as well as fellowshipping with the Lord himself. Now as you'll see in a moment, this is the argument that Paul is going to use 
in the case that he's building as to why the Corinthians should flee idolatry. I told you he's building a case, so keep that in mind. But to strengthen his case, to strengthen his argument, Paul uses another example where participating in a religious feast meant becoming partners with those involved in that feast. Notice verse 18. Paul says, look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? Now, although these words are placed in the form of a question, it's really a rhetorical question because the answer is obvious. Paul reminds us that when the Jewish people offered their animal sacrifices, all who participated in those sacrifices, which included the one who actually brought the animal, the priest who ate some of the meat left over from the sacrifice, and God himself who received the sacrifice, all of these formed a partnership, a fellowship, and shared in this religious feast. That's important. Paul is, has said, he's given us two examples of a religious experience where those who participate in them enter into a special oneness and partnership with each other. He spoke about the Lord's Supper. He spoke about the Jewish sacrificial system. So what does this have to do with the Corinthians fleeing idolatry? What Paul is now about to tell us is he's going to connect the dots for us as we see in the next two verses, 19 and 20. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the thing which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to become sharers in demons. Now, as you can see, Paul returns to speaking about idols. You thought, where is he going with this? Well, he's back. He's made his point, which he's going to bring out in a moment. He makes it very clear that food sacrifice to an idol is really nothing because an idol is nothing. What is an idol? Well, it represents a false god, a deity that doesn't exist because there's only one, one true god. Therefore, an idol is really nothing. It's just a lifeless piece of wood or, or metal. Paul actually made the same point back in chapter 8, verse 4, when he said these words, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. But now, now, several chapters later, Paul reveals something that he has not said up to this point about idols. He reveals in verse 20 that when people sacrifice to idols, though there's no such thing as an idol of a false god, Yet behind idols, unseen by human eyes, are demons, Satan's emissaries, fallen angels. So when pagans sacrifice food to an idol, in reality they are sacrificing food to a demon impersonating an idol. And therefore, Paul goes on, notice what he says at the end of verse 20, and I don't want you to become sharers in demons. This is his argument. And we understand now why Paul spoke so much about the Lord's Supper. He was making the point, the argument, that anytime you enter into any type of religious worship, be it the Lord's Supper or Jewish animal sacrifices or idol worship, you become a partner with the one that you're worshiping as well as with the other people who are joining you 
in the worship. Therefore, if anyone goes to a pagan temple and participates in the worship of an idol, Paul wants them to know you're actually worshiping a demon. You're becoming a partner with a demon and other demon worshipers. Even if you don't realize it, that's what's happening. So how is this relevant to us? Because frankly, we're not about to go off to a pagan temple and worship an idol. Does this mean that this is irrelevant for us? Doesn't pertain to us, doesn't apply to us because we aren't in danger of worshiping a demon? No, it doesn't mean that at all because Satan and demons are behind any form of idolatry, even in our modern world. Demons influence all idolatry because demons are the ones tempting us to put something ahead of the Lord. For example, if you love money and you have made it your God, you have made it an idol, where did this thought come from to love money? Who pushed you in the direction of loving money? Well, I want you to see a passage of Scripture that I think you're familiar with because we studied this a while back. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Satan, or one of his demons, put this in your heart. And I remind you of Acts 5. Here's what we read. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. This is some property they owned. They didn't need to sell it, but they did this. And kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. So what we're being told here is that he sold this piece of property. He and his wife knew this. Whatever amount of money they got for this, they gave some of it to the Lord, to the apostles, to the early church, and kept back a portion for themselves. But they lied about how much they sold it for, because they were greedy. They loved money, but they wanted to look good. They wanted to look like Barnabas, who was such a generous man. But Peter, notice first, Peter said, Ananias, why, notice, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land. So notice it was Satan himself who was behind Ananias and Sapphira's love of money. This man made money as God and Satan had influenced him to do this. So don't be naive. If you have an idol in your life, there is a demonic influence involved. Listen to these insightful words from Bible teacher and pastor Ray Stedman. He said, the subtle idolatry of seeking pleasures, acquiring possessions, and immersing ourselves in worldly fascination seems innocent enough, but what is behind the seductive lure of seemingly innocent things? Paul's answer, demonic control. There's no metaphor. This is a literal, realistic truth. Invisible spirits under the command of the God of this world seek to divide our loyalties and seduce us into idolatry, into satanic mind control. The ultimate goal of these demonic forces is death, the destruction of human lives and souls. Now, if you happen to live or visit a country like India, you would see there's nothing subtle about the demons being behind their idols. Because you would see, as Michelle and I saw when we were in India, you would see, especially if you went to a, a Hindu temple, you would see Hindu people worshiping one of their many gods, they have millions of gods, one of their many gods, and you would, you would sense, you would feel the atmosphere to be clearly satanic, no doubt about it, demonic in every way. So 
why is it important to flee idolatry? Because to join in a worship feast is to experience fellowship with whatever you're worshiping. And in the case of the Corinthians, they were worshiping demons without even realizing it. Now that's the first reason Paul gives for fleeing idolatry. But as the apostle continues, he gives a second reason, which is it is impossible to have fellowship with Christ and fellowship with demons. Impossible. Verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Since participating in the Lord's Supper brings you into fellowship with Jesus himself, and since participating in the worship of an idol brings you into fellowship, Paul says, with demons, the apostle says you can't have it both ways. You cannot have fellowship with Christ and have fellowship with demons. They are mutually exclusive. In other words, it is an absolute impossibility to worship Jesus and worship Satan at the same time. Can't be done. This is the same principle that our Lord taught when he said you cannot serve two masters at the same time. Likewise, you cannot have fellowship with Jesus while at the same time having fellowship with a demon. It just can't be done. It is impossible. So why flee idolatry? Because your faith and your devotion to Jesus Christ doesn't allow you the possibility of putting something above him, especially a demon, or knowing that there's the demonic influence of putting something above him. So if there's any kind of idol in your life, folks, deal with it. Deal with it. Because you cannot worship that demon behind your idol while at the same time worshiping Christ. You're going to have the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. You can't have both. You can't have an idol in your life that you love and you cherish and you're not about to repent of and yet come to the Lord's table. It can't be done. At least it can't be done with the right heart attitude and the true worship. So up to this point, Paul has given us two reasons for fleeing idolatry. Number one, to join in a worship feast is to experience fellowship with whatever you're worshiping. Number two, it's impossible to have fellowship with Christ while having fellowship with demons. There's still one final reason Paul gives for fleeing idolatry, and that's found in verse 22. Paul tells us, because God is a jealous God. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We're not stronger than he, are we? Well, with these words, Paul states what the Old Testament has stated many, many times, and that is that one of God's attributes is jealousy. I think the first time a new believer hears that, I wonder, how could that be? But it is. This is what Scripture says. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Again, Deuteronomy 4, verse 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now, the reason that a new believer might struggle with this is because human jealousy is sinful. We're told not to be jealous, told not to be resentful, not to be covetous, because jealousy is accompanied by the sins of covetousness and greed and resentment and pride. However, God's jealousy is not like that at all. It's untainted by sin. God's jealousy is holy, it's pure, it's perfect. What it means for God to be jealous is that since he is the supreme one of the universe, the exalted one, he is the only one worthy of everyone's love and affection, he's jealous when there is a rival to him. And that's why it's so wrong to worship an idol, because 
It becomes a rival to him. Anything you worship is a rival to him. It provokes God to jealousy since he wants, he demands your undivided love, affection, worship, adoration, praise. See, idolatry is an affront to God. As I said earlier, he is insulted by anything you put above him, anything you put ahead of him. He's insulted by that. So put all idols out of your life. Otherwise, God will have to discipline you. And you don't want that to happen. Why? Well, look at the last few words of verse 22. We're not stronger than he, are we? Well, the answer is rather obvious. Of course we're not. In other words, why would you provoke the Lord to jealousy in having an idol? Because if you do that, then you won't be able to avoid God's discipline because you're certainly not stronger than he is so as to escape from his hand of discipline. He'll make sure that you're dealt with because he's stronger than you. You're not getting out of this. You're not going to arm wrestle him and beat him. So he goes, okay, I guess you win. No, he's stronger than you are. So don't do it. So look, if there's an idol in your life, anything, ask the Lord to deal with you. Ask him now. We're going to pray in a few moments and ask him to search your heart. Listen, there are many times that I have to repent of idolatry, especially the love of a sport and getting too involved in a hobby. This is life. So repent if there's anything where you've crossed the line where something means too much to you. You can love something, but don't put it above the Lord. You can have a hobby. You can be interested in things. You can really have an affection for something, but not a rival to Christ. He has to have first place in all things. So I'm going to ask you now, just quiet our hearts before the Lord as we move into the Lord's Supper. And I want you to just ask the Lord to show you what needs to be repented of, if indeed anything, about an idol. And then what steps to take to do it. As I said, don't just say, well, Lord, I'm sorry. But what do you need to do to forsake that idolatry? And remember, as we enter into the Lord's Supper, we are fellowshipping with Christ. We are joining our hearts together with one another and with Him. This is a special partnership as we remember our common salvation. So let's spend a few minutes in prayer and then we'll proceed to read 1 Corinthians 11 and partake of the elements. I'll give you a few minutes to be alone with the Lord. Father, as our hearts, the hearts of your people are going up to you now, speaking to you, I pray that you'll bring to our minds anything that we feel we must have, because if we must have it, it's an idol. Could be so many things, Lord. But I pray that you'll help us to repent, to love you more than ever, to worship you, to adore you, to get rid of of all rivals, because you are a jealous God. And you have every right to be jealous, and we have no right to have an idol. So Lord, I, I pray that you'll show us whatever it is that needs to be dealt with and that you'll show us how to deal with it so that we might be free of all idolatry, that we might flee idols. Lord, I pray as we enter into communion now with you, with the Lord Jesus, with the Spirit of God, with one another, as we rejoice in our common salvation, that this will 
This will be a special time. I pray that now that we know these things, that we'll take the Lord's Supper more seriously as a church. I pray for those who never seem to come out Sunday night when we have the Lord's Supper, that they'll be made aware and convicted of the importance of doing this, that this shouldn't be an option. And so I pray that this will be a very sacred, holy time of fellowship. In Jesus' name we pray. So here's what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So you have the little symbol of bread that is a reminder of Christ's body being broken. And let me again say this. When Jesus said that his body is broken, he didn't mean that any bones were broken. Scripture says very clearly no bones of his were broken. It simply means that the loaf, we have a little piece of bread here, but the, the loaf, they had one loaf and they, Jesus broke that loaf and dispersed it, meaning that communion is for all believers. When we gather, it's for all true believers. This is why in the past I have been asked by couples getting married, can we have communion? I said, no, not really. Because I've relented at times on that because it's just so pathetic when you're getting married to have a pastor say, no, you can't do this. But communion is really for the whole body. It's not for two people getting married and we're all going to watch you have communion. It is a sharing. And that's what we're doing. That's the point about the brokenness of the bread. His body was broken so that others could share in this. So let's look to the Lord in prayer and then we'll partake of the bread. Lord Jesus, we thank you that when you died, you died for us. You died for Jews and Gentiles, free and slaves, men and women, boys and girls. We thank you for that, Lord. And this life is shared and we know in heaven there'll be people from every tribe, every people group, what we call races. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you that you were broken, that we might have life. And you lay down your life for us. No one took it from you. So, Lord, we give you thanks. And as our hearts are giving thanks to you, we know now that we are in a special holy communion, one with each other in thought and prayer and praise of you, and one with you, Lord. So we thank you indeed. In your name we pray as we take this. Amen. And then we read in verse 25, in the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So the cup represents his blood, which had to be shed, because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. The cup is a reminder of the covenant that God makes with us, the new covenant, not the old one. The old one is the law. The new covenant says, I'll put my spirit within you. I'll give you a new heart. It's regeneration. 
That's why we love him because he first loved us and transformed us, made us new creatures in Christ. So we thank him for this and it is also the forgiveness of our sins. It's all tied together. So let's give him thanks. Lord, we thank you for your blood being shed on our behalf. It cleanses us. It forgives us. You gave your life that we might have eternal life. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you that we're one in you. We thank you that no matter what our backgrounds are, what our cultures are, what our primary languages might be, we are one in Christ and you've made us that. And your, your blood makes us one body, a forgiven body. And so, Lord, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. We want to renounce all idolatry and love you solely without anything else being a rival to you. And so we partake of this cup now with that in mind. In your name we pray. Amen. So let's stand as we close in prayer. Appreciate you being here tonight and this morning. And let's look to our Lord. Lord, thank you for teaching us. This is not an easy passage to grasp. It's not an easy passage to apply. But I pray that we all have gotten the basic truth that we are in fellowship with you, fellowship with one another whenever we have the Lord's Supper. And we thank you, Lord. Who could have ever thought this thing through that you would take people from so many different walks of life and make them one body, one unified body, so many different cultures, so many different backgrounds, so many, so many different educational levels, so many different things in our lives. And yet we're one in Christ. So we praise you for that. Lord, we do pray. We haven't emphasized salvation tonight in terms of reaching out with the gospel, but we pray if any are here or watching who have never turned to Christ, we pray that what has been said tonight will be used by the Spirit of God to cause them to turn to Jesus for salvation and to renounce all idolatry, the, the love of self. Our Lord, we thank you for letting us gather. It's been a special time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.